Oh, it is good to see you this morning. I'd invite you uh, to take a Bible with me and turn to 2 Samuel. Um, if you're a guest with us today, beginning in October, we started a journey through the scripture. And this last week, we've been in 1 and 2 Samuel uh, during the day. And, and today, we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to invite you to remain seated this morning as I read the text, because I'm going to read the whole chapter. Um, and I don't want any of you to pass out along the way. Uh, but here is Second Samuel uh, chapter 6. Once again, David assembled the select warriors of Israel, 30,000 strong. David and all the troops who were with him set out for Bala, which is Kirith-Jerim of Judah, to bring God's chest up from there, the chest that is called by the name of the Lord of heavenly forces who sits enthroned on the winged creatures. They loaded God's chest on a new cart and carried it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were driving the new cart. Uzzah was beside God's chest while Ahio was walking in front of it. Meanwhile, David and the entire house of Israel celebrated in the Lord's presence with all their strength, with songs, zithers, harps, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. When they approached Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to God's chest and grabbed it because the oxen had stumbled. The Lord became angry at Uzzah, and God struck him there because of his mistake, and he died there next to God's chest. Then David got angry because the Lord's anger lashed out against Uzzah, and so that place is called Perez Uzzah today. David was frightened by the Lord that day. How will I ever bring the Lord's chest to me, he asked. So David didn't take the chest away with him to David's city. Instead, he had put it in the house of Obed-Edom, who was from Gath. The Lord's chest stayed with Obed-Edom's household in Gath for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom's household and all that he had. King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and everything he has because of God's chest being there. So David went and brought God's chest up from Obed-Edom's house to David's city with celebration. Whenever those bearing the chest advanced six steps, David sacrificed an ox and a fatling calf. David dressed in a linen priestly vest, danced with all his strength before the Lord. This is how David and the entire house of Israel brought up the Lord's chest with shouts and trumpet blasts. As the Lord's chest entered David's city, Saul's daughter Michael was watching from a window. She saw David jumping and dancing before the Lord and she lost all respect for him. The Lord's chest was brought in and put in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. Then David offered entirely burned offerings to the Lord's presence in addition to well-being sacrifices. When David finished offering the entirely burned offerings and the well-being sacrifices, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heavenly forces. He distributed food among all the people of Israel to the whole crowd, male and female, each receiving a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake. Then all the people went back to their homes. David went home to bless his household, but daughter, but Saul's daughter, Michael, came out to meet him. Oh, how did Israel's king honor himself today, she said, by exposing himself in plain view of the female servants of his subjects like any indecent person would. 
David replied to Michael, I was celebrating before the Lord who chose me over your father and his entire family and who appointed me leader over the Lord's people over Israel and I will celebrate before the Lord again. I may humiliate myself even more and I may be humbled in my own eyes but I will be honored by female but I will be honored by the female servants you are talking about. And Michael Saul's daughter had no children to the day she died. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I've actually really been looking forward to this text uh, for a while. And uh, I know that sounds strange, but I've been, been looking forward to it because I have wanted desperately to fix a sermon that is almost 25 years old for me now. Uh, the last time I preached this text was about 25 years ago, and I really blew it, and I've been looking for the chance to make up for it. But before we get to that, um, let me catch you up on where we've been. So if you were with us last week, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the song of Hannah. Hannah was barren, and she prayed before the Lord. Eli thought she was drunk, but she was just sad, and God blessed her, and she ended up having this child. In a time when the word of the Lord was rare, God heard Hannah's prayer, and Samuel comes on the scene. And, and Samuel, it only takes him about six chapters to grow up. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, a very important text, the text I maybe should have preached on today, but 1 Samuel 8, the people come to Samuel and they say something no leader wants to hear. You are old. Um, and worse than that, your sons don't follow in your ways, and so we want a king. And it's such an important text because it's this moment where Israel decides they are done with the uniqueness that God has for them. We want a king so we can be like all the other nations. God wasn't happy about it, but God ended up relenting and giving to them a king. They get Saul as a king, and Saul turns out to be an okay king for a while and a not okay king for a long time. And we could have stopped and thought about Saul's kind of wishy-washy character and what, what made Saul in the end not a very good king. We could stop at one of my other favorite texts, 1 Samuel 16, where... Not only is God tired of Saul and the people tired of Saul, Samuel is tired of Saul. And so he goes to Bethlehem and he anoints David, but it's such a great text. He shows up at Jesse's house, all the sons prayed before him, Eliab, the oldest, just looks like a king. And God says to Samuel, knock it off. Stop looking at the things humans look at, for I look at the heart. Some of you know one of the reasons it's one of my favorite texts is because when, when Samuel asks, are there any sons re yet remaining after these first seven have passed before him, Jesse says, well, there remains yet the youngest, but it's, it's a great Hebrew word. It's the word hakaton, H-A-Q-Q-A-T-O-N. There remains yet the youngest, but it's a very strong word that can, can be translated runt of the litter. And so he says, well, you know, I mean, there's the youngest, but he's out keeping the sheep. Um, but that turns out to be the very one that God has chosen and then in chapter 17, David defeats Goliath. And in chapter 18, David and Jonathan become friends. It's not only that Saul's becoming unpopular with the people, not, his family doesn't even like him very much. And David increases in popularity. And, but in the midst of this conflict, David's unwilling to do damage to Saul. And then we get to 2 Samuel, and Saul dies, and Jonathan dies, and and pretty soon, David begins to inherit the kingdom. And so let me tell you what happens in the chapter right before the one we just read. Second Samuel chapter 5, some key things happen. First, 
David unifies Israel. The northern tribes had stayed loyal to Saul and to his son Ishbosheth, but Ishbosheth is killed. And in chapter 5, David brings them all together. And even the language is there that David is a shepherd to them, is going to shepherd all of the people. And then David starts fighting against the Philistines. One of the failures of Saul was he was supposed to get rid of the Philistines, but they just kept gaining ground. In fact, they took even over Saul's hometown. But David runs them out and begins to create peace for the people. And then, interestingly, David goes up and captures Jerusalem. And the city of David is established. And and this key city that will be so central and is still so central to the identity of God's people and to the both the politics and worship of Israel, David captures it. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 6, now that there's peace, now that he has the whole place unified, now that he has Jerusalem, all he needs now is the glory of God that was taken away to show back up. And for God to bless it, and they're going to live happily ever after. Isn't it wonderful? Well, here's what happened earlier. So we haven't heard about the ark for almost the entire book. In 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6, the Philistines come and they capture the ark. Now, it is a very funny text. Those of you who haven't followed with us, it is a very funny text. They capture the ark and they decide, see, our gods are so much better than Yahweh. And so they put the ark in this big worship center where their god Dagon is. And they put the ark next to it, but when they wake up in the morning, Dagon has fallen prostrate before the ark of the Lord. So they think, well, maybe an earthquake or something knocked Dagon over, so they push Dagon back up. When they come back in the morning, Dagon has fallen over again, only this time his head and his hands have broken off. For clearly, the presence of God is in their midst. But they're still not totally convinced, and this is my favorite part. So God gives them all hemorrhoids. Uh, (laughs) it's It's a lovely story. And now they're sure they should not have the ark. And they want to get rid of the ark. And so they do the funniest thing. They build a cart. They put the ark on it. But they're still not quite sure that this isn't just nature. Um, And so they, rather than have oxen draw the cart, they put two milk cows in front of the ark. And they say, they've never pulled an ark, they've never pulled a cart before. So if they pull the cart, then surely it must be God. And sure enough, these milk cows start pulling the ark and they head it right back to Israel. And I know that you don't find the Bible funny, but it really is. There's this very funny part where all of a sudden the Israelites look up one day and there's milk cows pulling the ark right back. And and the text says, and mooing all the way. Like it's just, it's a great text. So they've left it there, and David goes to retrieve it. He's now going to bring it up. And notice, back in 1 Samuel, they built a cart. So David, who's in a hurry and ready to do this thing, David builds an ar- a cart to bring the ark back into the capital city. So here's why I preached this so badly 25 years ago, and why I really have been excited to re-preach this today. 25 years ago, I was invited to speak at a camp meeting in southeast Oklahoma. I was teaching at SNU at the time, and I was about 30, I think. Jonah was just a baby. And I was invited to preach. It was going to be all week long. Um, Southeast Oklahoma owned this really bad old camp. And they were getting rid of it. And they had bought a new piece of property, but they hadn't built anything on it yet. So they put up a big tent. And so we were going to, supposed to stay at the old campground, but we were going to go meet in the tent every night. And 
And it was one of those camp meetings that was going to last for eight days, and there were going to be two or three services every day. And so there were two preachers, me and a retired general superintendent. Actually, Dr. Jerry Johnson was the other preacher. And so they thought this was kind of cool, old guy, young guy, you know, let him have it. Um, so I was preaching all these texts on David, and, and a few things went wrong. First of all, we, we stayed one night at the campground, and bugs and spiders crawled all over us. And uh, Debbie got up in the middle of the night and said, we are out of here. <laughs> and so we went home, and so we were commuting back and forth. Uh, one of the funniest moments in our marriage happened. Uh, I was in the middle of preaching. I think it may have been this sermon. And um, it was Oklahoma in the middle of summer, so there were bugs everywhere. And every time they would open the flap of the tent, these like clouds of bugs would come in and encircle around the lights that were hanging from the ceiling of this, of this uh, tent. And right in the middle of it, my great uncle Bert was sitting next to Debbie, right in the middle of it, this big bug flew down Debbie's dress and everybody thought she got blessed as she went running out of the tent. And everybody thought, you know, God, the spirit of God had been poured out and it was not the spirit of God. And my uncle knew that, great uncle knew that, and he was laying on the row laughing. But, um, but when I preached this sermon... I decided I would just go all out 30-year-old prophet on these people. Because when I read this text before, what I assumed to be the case was that there, the text is really about this contrast between David and Michael. And that Michael is this bitter, don't really care about the presence of God kind of person, who, the kind of person, you know, who's been in church all their life and doesn't really like new stuff, just doesn't want to participate in anything. But David, oh, David celebrates. He, puts, he even puts both hands in the air when we sing, right? Like he, like he does all this stuff. And so I let all these old people have it for being cranky to their young pastors. I mean, I let it fly. Heaven and earth kissed. Um, actually, it didn't. Um, and the next morning, Dr. Johnson, who was so kind to me, but he got up and he started his sermon the next morning by, this is the exact quote, he said, today I would like to talk about all the things I didn't like about what Scott said last night. <laughs> and, and at first I was offended, but I thought about it now, and he was right. Uh, so I want to correct that sermon. I want to correct that understanding this morning with you. And so if you have the text still open, um, I think there's something right about David and the people wanting the Ark of the Covenant to be in the center of their life. I think at the heart of the text, there's something right. David understands, I have pushed the Philistines back. I have established a capital city. I have created peace. I have unified the people. But here's the deal. If the unique presence of God doesn't show up, it's not going to matter for very long. This is a terrible illustration for a Nazarene pastor, but it's kind of like I was thinking about all these Christmas movies. It's kind of like, you know, when Clark Griswold covers his house with Christmas lights, but then plugs it in and nothing happens. It's as though David has done all this work, but then boop, nothing happens. If God's spirit doesn't show up, it just doesn't matter. It's it's like owning a super expensive car, but never putting gas in it. I mean, like nothing happens. And so when I, I preached this text 25 years ago, I thought that the primary problem in the story was that David didn't obey God fully. 
that he put the ark on a cart and he was trying to get it there in a hurry and he wasn't paying attention to Numbers chapter 7 that gives very clear instructions about how the ark is to be carried. And you may notice that in the text, when David goes and gets the ark back, he carries it the right way. He has the priest carry it. He's not in a hurry. They sacrifice and sing and dance all the way there. And so I thought, here's the point of it. If we would just do the right things and follow the right directions and put all the right people in place and then do it with a sense of passion, then it would all work. But now I understand why Dr. Johnson didn't like that sermon very much. Because now as I think about the text as an old guy, I realize that part of this text is about this. And I've been struck by this again and again as we have been journeying through the Old Testament. To, to borrow a line from C.S. Lewis that I've borrowed several times in the last few weeks, when C.S. Lewis talks about Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan will often be described as this, Aslan is good but not safe. Aslan is good but not safe. And part of what this text is about is that as desperate as David is for the presence of God to enter into this city, God will not be controlled. Not even by David. Now, I want to say, I feel like I've spent a lot of my life both getting over myself, but also helping other people get over their fear of God. And I think that is right. For God is not revealed to us as somebody that we should be terrified and fearful of. Perfect love casts out all fear of what he might do to us. But at times I fear in my own life and in the lives of others, in getting over our fear of God, we also lose our reverence for God. Our awe of God. And, and I fear for a couple of generations now, the loss of taking seriously our decisions and how they impact not only ourselves, but impact God as well. And I'm wanting to help people know how God acts or doesn't act, but I don't want to remove the mystery of the uncontrollable God who is not ours to manipulate or control. And even when we feel like we've put all the pieces in place, it won't matter if God doesn't show up. But God doesn't have to show up just because we've put all the right pieces in place. And then 25 years ago, I had, no, I had little or no empathy for Michael. Um, early in her life, you may remember, um, David married her, and when Saul was angry with her, or was angry with David, David fled, and Michael helped him escape out the window. And so there's actually kind of an interesting thing in this text. This one who had helped David escape out the window now stands in the window in judgment of David. And so I thought that, again, to me, she represented every cranky layperson I've ever known in my life. Standing up during worship, not happy that they're standing up. With somebody like Ryan, desperately trying to get us to, like, even sing a song like, clap your hands, all you people, and they're not going to clap, right? And to me, that's, that's who she represented. 
But now, as I approach her life again, I realize that's not really who she is. But that she's a woman who's been passed around like a political football. It's very interesting in the story when Saul is chasing David and David flees, Saul takes Michael and gives her away to somebody else. And when David gains power, he goes and gets her back with her new husband crying all the way. And I realized that so much of her life is told in the text as somebody who's just been manipulated and pushed around, somebody who hasn't been able to make decisions for her own life, but had decisions made for her. And so in some ways, she still represents lay people to me, but she represents them this way. She represents some of you who have been in this church for years, and I'm like your 16th pastor. And we drive you crazy. Because there's always going to be a new one of us. With some scheme for how we're going to move forward. Not really giving enough proper attention to what's happened in the past. Only thinking about what's going to happen in the future. And it's no wonder, some of the sweet folk out at our Middleton campus, they have been through so much change over the years. It's no wonder they look at us and wonder, well, how long are you going to be here? When are you going to leave? We'll still be here. But what's the next change that's going to be pulled on us? And so it's no wonder that oftentimes we wonder, is this all just kind of a game that other people are playing And when is God really going to show up in the midst of it? And 25 years ago, I could only think of David in terms of goodness. And I might get in trouble this morning, but I'm right. Um, Now when I read these texts, I'm way more suspicious of David than I used to be. Um, it's, It's interesting to me, by the way, in the text... There are three deaths that help David politically. Saul dies. Well, actually, Saul and Jonathan die. Um, Abner, Saul's general, is killed. Then Ishbosheth is killed. And in each case, people kill them for the sake of David and then want a reward, and David kills them instead. And when I read this text, I, there's a part of me that says, Oh, that's so great. David didn't want any of that to happen. But part of me also says, David's trying to look innocent, but it's still helping him. He's still benefiting from it. And in this text, I love that he dances before the Lord with just an ephod on, but he could put some pants on, right? Michael may be rightly concerned that that David is showing parts of his body that he didn't need to show. And and in the story, there may be then aspects of David's character that's going to show up later in the story, kind of revealed There's a part of me that's bothered that he puts on an ephod. He puts a priestly garment on. He's not a priest. He's a king. There's something a little bit dangerous when we priests think we're kings and when kings think they're priests. And that gets kind of unhealthy. And as I said, his life has been a series of unfortunate events that he looks innocent of, but a whole lot of people have suffered along the way. And in this moment where he's bringing the presence of God into Jerusalem, I think David has more mixed motives than the narrator sometimes wants us to believe. 
And maybe that's because I recognize those mixed motives in me. More than anything, I want God's unique presence to show up in this place, in this time, and in this church. Don't you? But between you and me, I also don't want to fail. But in the midst of all of that, the complicatedness of our desires, the brokenness of our lives, the desire for God to show up, the inadequacy of us to do that on our own. There is something amid all of those mixed motives that still makes David such a unique leader in that unique moment in Israel's history because there's a desire on David's part not to control or manipulate God, but to, in sincerity and vulnerability to desire more than anything that the transformative power of God would show up and dwell in the midst of God's people. And, and that, to me, is the center now of this text. It's, it's not doing the right things. It's not getting the right people in place. It's not even always having the right attitude. It's an openness, a desire for God to show up and a willingness to be vulnerable before God and each other and to be transparent with God and to be open in ways that allow God to move as God wills to move. And so as we enter this new year together I think it's going to be a really interesting one for us as a church. Um, we've changed a lot in the last three years of disruption. And some of that change has been heartbreaking and some of that change has been good. But in the midst of it all, I think we're still trying to discover what is the primary missional identity that God has for college church and for new creation communities at this moment in the life of this church and in this community. It, it'll be an interesting year for me and Deb. Um, yesterday was Debbie's last official day as women's minister. Uh, we're going to honor and celebrate her in a couple of weeks when everybody's back. Uh, but this will be the first time in 20 years that she doesn't have an official partnership role with me in ministry. Now, in some ways, that's going to be great for her, not for me, but for her. Um, she gets to focus on having relationships with people. She gets to focus on her new position at the credit union, and she's going to help MOPs continue to flourish. But, but that's going to be new for us. And, and I am going to try to take a sabbatical this year for the first time uh, in 30 years of ministry. Um, so here's the deal. You can't die between the middle of May and the end of July, Okay. Can we just make that deal right now? Um, but that's going to be unique. It's going to be unique for me. It's going to be actually really hard for me. It's going to be wonderful in some ways, but hard for me to let go in other ways. And it's going to be wonderful for some other voices to lean in and for that leadership to be diverse in that way. I also think this is going to be a really challenging year. Uh, if you pay attention to the numbers, uh, unless a significant miracle happens in the next two months, uh, for the first time in my eight years being with you, uh, we may end the year with a negative balance uh, financially. And it's very likely that for the first time in eight years, we won't go into a new budget year expanding the budget, but trying to figure out how to cut significantly from that budget. Um, so all of that's going to be interesting for us, right? As a community. But for you... 
as you enter in this new year, and it's not going to happen for another 11 years that we get to come to church on the first day of a new year. Pretty cool. What do you want God to do in and through you this year? The reason I find this text so important for us today is because this text says you don't get to just do all the right things and make all the right resolutions and somehow that will get God to show up. Now you can't do all the wrong things and hope God shows up to rescue you either. But it means as we enter this year, there has to be an openness a vulnerability, a posture of confession and praise, an invitation for God to come and to do what God would want to do in your life and in our lives together as a community. Amen? In just a moment, we're going to gather around the table. Oftentimes, um, on this Sunday, we have done a Wesley Covenant service together. This morning, I, I want to, in just a moment, lead you through Wesley's covenant prayer. Here are the words to the covenant prayer. I'm no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, a wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. What I love about that prayer and find so powerful are the desires of Wesley's heart in the middle of it. A willingness to be open to what God wants to do in our lives, even if that includes suffering. To be put to work or to be set aside. to be praised or to have Michael send you emails on Monday morning, right? Or to be criticized. To be full or to be empty, to have all things, to have nothing. At the heart of that is the heart of what I think 2 Samuel 6 at its best is about. Even in the mixed, midst of David's mixed motives is a heart that desires whatever you want. Oh God, I won't control your coming, but I will invite you to come as you will and to make things new. And so we gather around a table this morning as a way of being reminded that the posture that we take before the Lord is also the posture the Lord takes with us a posture of brokenness, of openness, of taking the love and life of Christ into ourselves to be changed by it. And so this morning, if you're a guest with us today, as the elements are distributed, you are more than welcome to eat and to participate with us. The only requirement is a heart open to what God wants to do in your life.
a heart open to the grace of God. And this morning, we come to this table as a people hungry for God to come, for Christ to come and to make all things new in us today. God, we pray this morning as we partake in this meal together that you would make us what we eat today, that you would make us the body of Christ for the sake of the world. There's something really powerful and new about a New Year's Day. But it is true each and every day that we walk into the future not knowing what it will bring, but we walk into that future with confidence and hope knowing that you will meet us there. And so we offer this year to you. Um, we offer this year to you as a church. We offer this year to you as individual disciples of you. We uncross our arms and, and even I pray God for some in this room who, for whom all sorts of hurts and disappointments and brokenness maybe with church or even with you keeps them from being open to what you want to do in their life now. Would you help heal that spirit? There's nothing sadder to me in this text than, than that last verse, that Michael's life ended barren. Please help us not to end with that kind of note about our life together. So make us open to what you want to do in us today, we pray. As we're served this morning and as we sing, um, some of you actually may want to come to the altar. We can figure out a way to serve you this morning at the altar. We'll serve you where you are as well. But as we sing, if you would like to come, I'd invite you to do that as well. But let's sing together. Those who are going to help me, let's come and we'll serve today. my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that always feels thy blood so freely shed for me. A heart resigned, submissive me, my great
I invite you, if you would, to hold the elements out in front of you. Let me pray a prayer of blessing. God, we hold in our hands today very common things, bread and cup. But we confess to you today that we, we too are common. But we pray that you would come and bless these elements, make them an uncommon means of grace to us so that by your grace we might be an uncommon revelation of your love to the world. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Let us take and eat in remembrance of him. supper was over, he took the cup and he blessed it. He said, this is my blood which is poured out for you to preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Let us take and drink in remembrance of him. May it be so today. Come, make us the body of Christ, we pray. If you're able, would you stand with me this morning? I would love for us to pray this covenant prayer together this morning as well. Would you respond with me? I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praise for you or criticized for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. 
I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry, then from north to south and east to west, we hear Christ be magnified. Life. 
And if I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you when you rise. And when you return in glory with all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing, my song will be the same. Sing, oh, Christ be magnified, let his praise Um, so if you've listened well this morning, Happy New Year. If you're like me, um, I kind of get addicted to those like 2022 in review shows, right? They tell you everything that has gone and then those shows that kind of predict what's going to happen maybe in 2023. Hopefully the stock market goes up. Uh, hopefully some other, some peace comes to some broken places. Um, hopefully the Mariners win a World Series. Come on now. Well, we'll be back in 2024. <laughs> you know, that rhythm is okay, but as God's people, this is how we do this. We look back to what God has done in the past and we sing, great is thy faithfulness. But we look forward, open to what God wants to do in and through us. Not knowing what lies ahead, but open to the God who meets us there. And so now unto him, who by his power at work within us is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. To him and, to, and not to us be glory. May it be found through us, this people called his church, and may it be given to Christ Jesus, his son, now and for all generations. And all God's people said, amen, go in his peace. <laughs>